Hi, and thanks for tuning in to My Adventures at Home Brewing. I'm Dan Matthews, and come along with me as we talk about things for new home brewers, from gadgets to how we got started to, I don't know, all the mistakes we make along the way. So come along for the ride and have a beer or two along the way. looking for that yeast that can help you attain the best beer possible that you're looking for escarpment laboratories escarpment laboratories are located in guelph ontario and make some of the finest yeasts in canada if you want to make the beer that you want and have consistent results all the time you need to check out escarpment laboratories hey guys dan here have you ever had a problem getting your glass or plastic fermenter clean? Well, I've just been introduced to something that's brand new. Uh, it's called Scrubber Duckies. It's a magnetic scrubber meant for glass or plastic fermenters. All you do is you drop this down inside your fermenter, use the handle, and scrub through the crud that's left over from the crucin. I've seen a lot of things, but this is, seems to be one of the neatest and coolest things out there right now. If you're having a problem getting your plastic or glass fermenter clean, this is something to use. Scrubber duckies. Hey everybody, it's Dan once more. It's time to go around the sun one more time and have a beer or two along the way. Thanks for joining us. Today we have Brian Huntley from Short Circuited Brewers. Uh, if you remember, we've had Brian on the show before when we were talking about uh, equipment. So how you doing, Brian? Good, how are you? Good, man. So how's things down in Ohio? Not too bad. You know, it's just uh, we've had a little bit of a roller coaster as far as weather goes. So you have some cold days, some days. I think today was like 76 degrees or something like that. It was crazy. And then tomorrow's going to be like 43. We just say, if you don't like the weather here, just wait a little while. <laughs> we kind of see the same It'll thing. change. Not that you'll like it after that, but, you know, if you exactly. don't like it, it's going to change to something. Yeah, so. we see the same thing here. It was like, uh, I guess... We go by Celsius, so it was like 22 degrees Celsius. Okay. So I, I guess it would be like like what 70 something for down yeah. your down your yeah end. somewhere around there. Yeah. And tomorrow, it's going into the single digits tomorrow. So we're looking. Oh at my gosh. We're going looking like eight degrees Celsius tomorrow. So. Oh my gosh. Welcome to Canada. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how about we were just. For those people who are just new to the channel, how about we recap on who you are and what you what you do? Yeah, so um, Brian with Short Circuit of Brewers. I've been brewing for a number of years, probably close to 10 years now. Uh, started out you know, on the stove doing some extract batches, quickly moved to partial mash and then right to all grain. And then after that, uh, went fully electric and I've been doing pretty much the electric brewing ever since then and uh, have a YouTube channel uh, pretty good following over there about 26,000 subscribers over there and uh, try to put out weekly videos if possible and uh, where you can find us over at uh, www.youtube.com forward slash short circuit of brewers and I can stop by and check out the videos I try to do product reviews and some you know some recipes every now and then um, tips and techniques you know, things on, you know, how to use your equipment as, as best you possibly can. And, you know, sometimes a little bit, of, a little hacking here and there, making things work better than what they were designed to do sometimes, or maybe saving you a little bit of money. So I'm sure there's, you know, if, if you're a home brewer, you probably find some content on the channel that you could uh, identify with and maybe get some help from. So stop by anytime. 
Guys, I can say this. Brian is a wealth of knowledge. I've pinged him a few times asking questions about my firmzilla and about pressure fermentation and a few other things. And I think he's gotten to the point where he's like, Dan, go away. I'm busy. Let me be. <laughs> Not at Dan. all. Let Not me be. <laughs> so please go check out his channel. Um, Brian and Coulter Wilson from Homebrewing DIY are two of the guys I go to a lot when I have questions about anything I do. Guys, honestly, if you're getting into it, these are the guys to talk to. So today's episode, guys, we are going to be talking about pressure fermentation. So this is something I've been recently beginning into and I'm having really good results with. And I can honestly say the chocolate espresso stout I'm having right now turned out absolutely fantastic under pressure fermentation. Awesome. So I'm actually having a, I'm actually having the chocolate peanut butter uh, porter that I did a video on the other day. So yeah, I saw that. It looked awesome. It, Very it looked, good. It looked awesome. You're, I think your wife wanted to wear the uh, peanut butter extract there after a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she said it was her new perfume. So <laughs> <laughs> it's okay with me. I mean, I like smell of peanut butter. So it's all good. <laughs> Not going to run me off. Exactly. Mm. So when it comes to pressure fermentation, I guess it's all relevant to what kind of a fermentation vessel that you have. So, I mean, I use a Firmzilla. I have the pressure fermentation kit with the floating dip tube. Okay. And so far it's been working really great. There was one small hiccup. The new one that I got, uh, I'm not sure if I didn't have everything cinched up tight enough or not. Cause I just do it like finger tight. So it's mm -hmm. so nothing breaks, but it was leaking. So what I had to do is I had to take it, everything all apart. I put Teflon tape around all the threads. Okay. Tighten everything back up again and Bob's your uncle. And okay. it's, all, it's all good now. But why is presser fermentation such a cool thing to do these days? Well, uh, one of the first things that really strikes me is, the, is the, the, the biggest positive of it is the lack of needing as a fine a temperature uh, band, if you will. So like, you know, normally, you know, like your ale yeast, you're looking at somewhere between, you know, generally 60 to 70 degrees, something like that. And with your lager yeast, you're usually, you know, they want you to ferment them like 50 in the 50s, something like that. Um, you know, and then you're going to lager them after that. But one of the things that it really impressed me about doing the pressure fermentation is that when you ferment under pressure, there's some sort of a biomechanical transportation uh, transformation that happens with the yeast and it's stressed but when it's it, when it's under that stress it does not produce a lot of the off flavors i mean you know you can get all those different weird green apple and all those other weird byproducts of a high temperature fermentation and you just it kind of eliminates that and i haven't pushed it as high as you know i haven't done any testing to push it as high as i can i, I may have to do that in the future but I mean, I, you know, I've, I've seen people fermenting just regular, like, let's say USO five, um, at, you know, 75, 80 degrees and not having any issues with any kind of off flavors or anything like that. So, I mean, that's kind of unheard of. If you did that under normal circumstances without any kind of pressure fermentation, you would have some, you, you know, you'd just about ruin the beer. I mean, it's, you know, you'd be yeah. dumping it out pretty much. Exactly. What I've seen is, is that for me, is that uh, my temperature range is, um, usually if I use an airlock, I'm aiming between 65 and 75 degrees Fahrenheit for, for, and I'm trying to hit that sweet spot of 70 just mm -hmm. to keep everything happy. Now doing it under pressure, I can put the, um, the jacket 
uh, insulated jacket Good over job. top of the uh, the firmzilla because it's going to keep the heat in a little bit and bring the heat up a little bit because the yeast actually does produce heat. So mm-hmm. what I do is I get it there and I, I'll let it come up and I'm like, okay, you're at roughly about 72, 70, max 75, and I'll just leave it. But mm-hmm. um, if at any point I see that the CO2 dips more than what I wanted to, I'll just close up my spunding valve, let, okay. the, let the pressure come back up, and then I'll open it up to where I want it. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly, that's a, a method you can use. And that brings up kind of a, that's a good segue into, uh, before we get too far into the discussion, we should talk a little bit about safety. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, the biggest thing with pressure fermentation is you're putting a vessel under pressure. And, you know, anytime you put a vessel under pressure, there's always the chance of some failure of some component. Um, you know, so it is absolutely necessary to use a spunding valve. Now, what a spunding valve is, basically, it's it's a valve that, you know, there's several different types, but a lot of them will use a spring with a basically like a rubber stopper that fits into an orifice in the housing. And by loosening or tightening a set screw that pushes the spring and the rubber stopper into the housing, you can increase or decrease the release of the pressure. So that basically what the spunding valve does is it actually releases pressure at a certain point. And that's kind of what Dan was talking about with, with you know, screwing the spunding valve a little bit in or out or whatever. You can adjust the, the pressure that way and maintain a constant pressure because, you know, as you go through your fermentation cycle, the yeast are a lot more active, maybe in the beginning and the, and the midpoint, and then they kind of start to drop off at the end. And you can kind of, you know, sometimes you'll actually go by your fermenter and you'll hear that spunding valve hissing. I mean, it's actually, you know, you hear the, the pressure letting off and you want that. I mean, that's, that's, a good that's something thing. that you want because you don't want to overpressurize a vessel. Um, you know, and, and because you could have, you know, a lid fail or, you know, the, the thing even explode for that matter, if, you know, if you overpressurize a vessel. So definitely safety is key and you got to have a, a, a spunding valve in order to do that. There's a lot of different models out there. Yeah. Uh, Kegland makes a blow tie and that's actually a diaphragm model that actually has like a rubber diaphragm. Again, there's a spring in there that pushes on it, but it's a little bit different, maybe a little bit more accurate than the rubber stoppers. I found some of the, the spunding valves with the, with the spring with the rubber stopper may not be quite as accurate. I mean, they do the job, but it, it might be a little bit difficult to adjust them. The one that I've probably seen that, that does the job the best is, is probably the Blickman spunding valve. I mean, I found it to be infinitely adjustable. I mean, it's got, you know, real fine threads and you can screw it in very, very easily and make, you know, minute adjustments to it and, and have a good result. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's one of the big things is, is being safe with it. You've, you've got to have a spunding valve on there yeah. when you do the pressure fermentation. So, I, you know, I'm sorry to uh, take over your podcast there, but I just want to make sure we covered that before we got much further. Hey man, all's good. We're having a friendly conversation. It's all good. <laughs> so one thing I, I, on the safety thing too, I think it should be mentioned as well is when you're fermenting under pressure, you need to make sure that the vessel you're using is meant to be placed under pressure or can hold pressure. I know for uh, the Firmzillas that I use, I can go up to 35 PSI. Uh, Kegs can go up to, I believe, 150 
PSI, depending on the keg. Yeah, you're, the PRV is going to blow before that. but Exactly. And guys, I have to tell you this. Please, please do not use a glass carboy or any sort of carboy at all. If you want to keep yourself in one piece and not have an explosion or a bomb go off in wherever you are fermenting, do not use a carboy. Make sure that the vessel you're using is meant to be uh, placed under pressure. That yeah, I was going to say thing. that that's kind of a, another good segue into, you know, okay, what, what vessels are good for that? Um, probably most people that have a keg system have a vessel that they can use already. And you kind of touched on that is a keg. Now, one of the things about using a keg, there's a couple of modifications that you really need to do if you're going to use a corny keg as a fermentation vessel. And there's a couple of things that you have to understand about using it because of the fact you're going to have a little bit less yield than you would if you use like a six or seven gallon fermenter. Um, one of the basic, the easiest things you can do to turn a corny keg into a pressure fermentation vessel is to take out the liquid dip tube and cut off probably like an inch, maybe inch and a half. And then you can use it as your fermentation vessel. You're probably not going to want to fill it up much more than four gallons, maybe four and a half at the most, because even though you are pressure fermenting, uh, and it does hold the krausen down. It still can. It do, still does create some krausen, and you know you you don't want to have a bunch of krausen coming up into your spunding valve because you know just like anything, if you get all that gunk in there, then it's not going to operate properly. You're going to have some issues. So from there, probably the next best thing that I've been messing with recently is going to be the uh, the Kegland all-rounder and it's it's a, a PET device and it's basically like the little brother of the Firmzilla and it's it's the Firmzilla all-rounder basically it it does not have any dump valves no you know no valves at all on it it's just it's a round vessel with the pressure lid and yeah you, you have to buy the pressure kit but you know there's a lid that you can buy with it that has two um, <clears throat> ball lock posts on it and then you can use, and it has a floating dip tube, much like yours does, much like the Firmzilla does with the with the dump canister and all that yep. stuff. But it, it doesn't have any of that. But it does have the floating dip tube and all the all those things. Um, if you want to move up into a little bit more expensive options, um, the Blickman Cornicle is another great device. And I've been using that for a long time. Basically, it's a corny keg that has a that's convertible to a conical fermenter. It has a a cone-shaped piece that actually clamps on the bottom. And it's rated, I think, for 50 PSI as well. So, I mean, it, it's kind of the same type of thing. It was intended to be a fermenter and a corny keg. You flip it over, you take the bottom off, you put the corny keg bottom on. I don't use it that way um, just because I don't like all the exposure to oxygen. But it makes a great fermenter that uh, has a conical. I mean, it has a dump valve on the bottom and all that stuff. That sounds crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it is this big cylindrical... You know, it's think of a corny keg with a with an attachment of a, a conical bottom on. Okay. Um, from there, uh, I do have a spike uh, flex plus, and you have to get the flex plus in order to have the pressure capable fermenter. Now that fermenter will only pressurize up to like 15 psi before the seals start to leak on it. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you can move up to more expensive options from there. Any of the, the manufacturers that have a unitank, most of those are pressure capable. 
So, I mean, you can, you can go from the equipment you already have all the way up to, you know, even some inexpensive brand new equipment on up, you know, to as shiny and as expensive as you want to go. But there, there are a lot of options out there for doing it. Yep. I would say do your research on what you're looking for if you're looking at possibly doing uh, pressure fermentation. I mean, if you want to drop a lot of money on stainless steel, go for it, guys. Absolutely. If you, you want to spend the money on something that you're going to have and not change it out, absolutely go for it but if you want like entry level stuff i would say look at look at the plastic stuff because like some of the stuff that's being put out is actually really 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 good i mean i have no issues with the kegland stuff the kegland stuff i find is absolutely phenomenal mm -hmm. yeah i mean I, I've, I've had good success with it as well um i've got a firmzilla i actually started out doing my pressure fermentation in the uh, fermentosaurus um, it was wrought with some problems. It, it, they just didn't have a good seal mechanism on top. Yeah. And I just had a lot of trouble getting those to seal. And then that's, that's when they uh, came up with the, the Firmzilla and uh, changed the design. And now it has a much better seal on it. And it, it, it does a much better job now. But, you know, and you can actually purchase the, the float ball and the short dip tube for a corny keg and use it much like one of the, the Firmzilla um, you know, one of the Firmzilla devices and not have any issue at all. Um, and it's, it's a, the conversion kit's not too expensive, but that's a great way to be able to rack the beer off and not have to worry about picking up any troop or yeast or anything like that. When you, when you rack the beer off to your right. keg for serving. Right. So I do have a question for you. Mm -hmm. So, um, I've been thinking about uh, dry hopping a, uh, a beer that I have that's under pressure right now. So okay. I'm, obviously I'm going to close the dump valve and I'm going to take the, uh, the collection jar off. Do I need to release the pressure inside the vessel to take that off? Um, you're you're going to have some pressure built up in the canister down there because I mean, even though you, you close the valve off, you have that pressure that was built up in there. So mm -hmm. I mean, you're going to have some pressure. It's not going to be like catastrophic pressure where it's going to spray everywhere because you're talking about, you know, it's basically just liquid under pressure. There's no air, there's no air gap in there or air space in there would compress and then suddenly expands when you take it loose. I mean, you're, you're going to experience some, you know, a little bit of a, a squirt when you take it loose, but you're not going to have an issue where it's going to, you know, just spray everywhere as long as your valve is closed. Yeah. The other thing that I would tell you with doing that, um, is I would highly recommend that you have at least one, possibly two ball lock fittings, you know, the screw on ball lock valves, much mm -hmm. like what's on the top of the Firmzilla and purge the, yeah. the cup before you open your valve back up. Yeah. Otherwise you have this massive amount of oxygen you're going to release going into in. the beer yeah. and, and that's not going to be good for you at all. Yeah. Um, so I do, I do have that. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I, I have that on all the collection jars that I have. So okay. that way, if I, if I just take one off and it's, and I don't feel like dumping it right away and I'm, or I'm going to save the yeast, I have one that spare just okay. to take out, put everything in, hook it all up, put the CO2 onto it, yeah. turn on, purge it, fill it, purge it, fill it, purge it. And right. then I just turn it off. Then I open the valve and I'll let the CO2 go into it because the CO2 is not going to hurt it. No, not at all. And that's, you know, uh, that's, that's kind of an, another great point about doing pressure fermentation is you can actually do a pressure transfer. So oh, yeah. once you've, once you've done your pressure fermentation, you've got this beer under pressure and 
I want to put it into a keg, but I don't want to expose it to oxygen. So my method for doing that is filling the keg with a, a light solution of, you know, star sand and water. I don't go full, I don't go full level, you know, full sanitization on my kegs when I do that. I think it's a waste of star sand and I, and I'm, you know, I've done it a lot and I've never had any issues. So, you know, I mean, I know some people are kind of would freak out about that, but I mean, I, I do a very diluted version of star sand just because I want some sanitizer in there when I'm pushing yeah. out the, the, the liquid. So then I'll hook my CO2 tank to the keg and then basically push out all of the water, the star sand liquid mixture and fill it with CO2. At that point, once you've done that, then you've basically got a vessel that's completely full of CO2. There's no oxygen in there. And then you can take your spunding valve from your center and put it on your keg on the, you know, the gas side. And then as you push with your CO2 tank, when you, as you push your beer out of the fermenter into the keg, the spunding valve is releasing the pressure on the other side. So basically, you know, you, you've got the, the spunding valve there to release the pressure yeah. when you're filling up the keg. So I, I, I do do the pressure transfer stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. I just don't, I do it. I do the transfers kind of like the way we do it at the brewery I work at. So we'll hook everything up. And I'll have more pressure inside of the actual vessel, the fermentation vessel. Uh -huh. And then I'll let the pressure out of the keg and it fills. So I go out to out. So, I, so there's no like actually foaming right. or anything else like that. It's right. nice, nice, easy, good to go. But the touch back on what you were saying about your, um, your cleaning and sanitation stuff. Um, I don't do it the way you do it. So at the brewery I work at, what we'll do is that we'll put the uh, caustic solution through it, wash it, rinse it. Then we'll run sanitizer through it. And once that's all done, we'll just give it a blast of CO2, purge it out, then fill it again. And then that's it. It's done. So, I mean, there's so many different ways to skin a cat. It's whatever works best for you for your process is what's the way to do it. Yeah. You know, I, I personally, I think, you know, and, and I don't have any like science to back this up or anything, but I personally, I like the reassurance for me that if I fill it up with liquid and then push all of that liquid out with CO2, I'm going to have a vessel that has no oxygen in it because, mm -hmm. you know, CO2 and oxygen do mix. If you're pressurizing the vessel and then just purging, you know, using the PRV and purging the, the, the vessel, putting some more in purging the vessel, there's a chance you do have some oxygen still mixed in there. Is it detrimental? I don't know. You know, it's one of those things where I'm kind of, you know, you can, you can geek out and, and get as crazy as you want with this kind of stuff. Uh, another method that you can do, if you have a spare keg and you don't want to expend CO2 from your tank, when you're doing your pressure fermentation, if you'll hook a jumper from your gas in, to your gas out on your keg that has the CO, the, the, um, the solution of star sand in it. As you do your pressure fermentation, you can actually push the, the star sand liquid, the solution out of that fermenter with the pressure from the fermentation and not use any of your CO2 from your tank. Once you push all of the CO2 out, once you push all the liquid out, then you can actually stick the spunding valve on the, the, the gas or, you know, or you, um, you can stick it on the, the liquid or the gas, either one, and then just use 
the empty keg that you've just emptied by pressurized, you know, the pressure fermentation, as you just as use you it as like a, a holding tank, if you will, as you do, as you finish out your fermentation. And then when you're done fermenting, the keg is already purged of CO2, you're good to go. Oh, I, I never thought of that. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to try that now. It, it works. It works. Actually, uh, Martin over at the, the homebrew challenge that does this, that's going through all the BJCP, uh, he and I had a conversation, I actually did a, a uh, kind of like a, a pressure transfer uh, collaboration with him. And I had talked to him about that. And then he actually started doing it a few times. And uh, he said, he said it worked really well. He, he likes it a lot. So, yeah, I got to say, uh, I'm, I, I'm geeking out right now over how fast um, I can turn a beer around doing pressure fermentation. Yeah. It's, it's nuts. So basically a bit guys. So basically a beer usually takes me approximately about two weeks. To, if it's an ale to ferment out properly under pressure, you can do an ale or a lager within say maximum three days. Yeah. I'd, I'd say maximum three days. And then you move that into your keg, hook your gas up to it. And I do the shake, rattle and roll to, to curb, to carbonate mm -hmm. it. And then I let it sit for about 36 hours and it's perfectly carbonated. Right. That's another good point too. That there's a, there's a couple things to know about pressure fermentation uh, from a carbonation standpoint. Uh, one of them is when you are pressure fermenting, generally, especially with, you know, temperatures we're talking about, CO2 does not saturate into beer easily at that temperature. No. So when it's up that high, but it does saturate into the beer to a certain extent. And, and Dan, you can probably uh, vouch for this, but if you were to release the pressure on your fermentation vessel, you know, at the end of fermentation, if you release the pressure, you know, through the PRV valve or through your spunding valve or whatever, you're going to release CO2 from the beer. It's going to yep. come out. And you're gonna have you're gonna have a, a big rush of foam, so it's just something to kind of be aware of. If you release the pressure, say to dry hop or do something like that, you're definitely gonna have some foam to contend with. But yes. when the pressure builds back up, it, it basically goes right back down. Um, the other thing with the pressure fermentation is that when you're done with the fermentation, even though CO2 does not saturate into the beer very well, it there is some residual CO2 in the beer more than just a normal fermentation. So if you have a particular method that you use to carbonate your kegs, let's say, you know, you leave them at X PSI for so many days or whatever, you could probably cut that in half, I would say, mm -hmm. something like that, because usually there's about half of your, your, your fermentation is going to produce about half of the CO2 in the beer that you would normally not experience under a normal fermentation. So, you know, that, that's kind of another plus, you know, you, you don't have to use as much CO2 to, to carbonate the beer. You're, it's already partially carbonated when you transfer it to your serving vessel. Exactly. So, but one thing we haven't touched on is um, what PSI level should we actually have the vessel go to when uh, it's under pressure? I mean, I usually set mine at, at 10 PSI and, and I'll leave it there until it's done. Um, if I'm feeling a little nervous, I'll open it up a little more and bring it down below 10 and I'll bring it to about nine or eight and i find between eight and ten is the sweet spot for what the what i'm doing mm -hmm. so, some guys are saying well you want to look at between 12 and 15 i'm like to each their own but what do you think i mean i i think like between eight and ten is actually optimum 
Yeah, and, and I, I don't disagree with that. I think I think a lot of it is, you know, because we don't we don't have a lot of published data about, you know, what yeast work and what yeast don't. A lot of it has to do with, you know, what type of yeast you're using, how aggressive is it, how aggressively does it ferment? Mm. Um, you know, what are the characteristics of it? But I generally target somewhere between 10 and 15 PSI. So I'm I'm usually running, I usually don't ever let it drop below 10. Okay. But 15 PSI is like the max. At some point, you know, somebody, people might be like, well, why don't you just do 20 or 30? Oh, no. At some point, you start to kill the yeast with yeah. the pressure. So just understand that, you know, the yeast will withstand pressure, but not up to a certain point. And other, you know, there's some yeast that, you know, like Saison yeast, they don't really like pressure very much. Yeah. Nor really would you want to probably do a Saison under pressure because, one of the one of the things that the pressure fermentation does that we talked about earlier is it kind of subdues a lot of those off flavors. Well, there's some yeast that I probably wouldn't ferment under pressure, like say a Belgian yeast or you know a saison or some of those. If you have a yeast that you really want the character of it, I would say you probably are better off not doing a pressure fermentation. Yeah, because the pressure fermentation is certainly going to subdue all those characteristics of the yeast. So, you know, if you're, if you're doing a, a pale ale or, you know, even like a stout or a porter or whatever, um, one of the, one of the styles I really like for the, for this method is uh, new England IPAs. I feel like that the biotransformation that occurs with all the hops that are in there, as well as the lack of blow off from, you know, like when you have, let's say you do a traditional, fermentation with a New England IPA, your house smells amazing mm -hmm. for, you know, three or four days. But if you think about it, I'm losing all of that aroma out of the beer. It's off gassing into the atmosphere because I'm not capturing it into the beer. With the pressure fermentation, you get a little bit, but I mean, it is minuscule compared to what you would get with a normal fermentation. And I think, I feel like that it forces all those aromas and flavors to stay in the beer rather than being off gas during like a normal fermentation. At least that's my perception anyways. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I find, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I agree. And, and I find that um, with under pressure, it, it, it forces the, those aromas and everything back into the, to the solution. So when mm -hmm. you actually do say open, you, you fill your, um, your glass, say if you have a keg grater out of your bottle, and you like, I'm a beer geek. I'm going to smell my beer. Mm -hmm. you know? Oh, yeah. I'll smell it, and it's and a lot of people will say, "Why do you do it?" Because before you taste it, you smell it because then you're actually tasting with the smell. And then when you taste it, it's an explosion of flavors and 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 whatnot. But one people don't realize the olfactory senses are probably about seventy percent of your taste. Exactly, <laughs> but one thing people uh, uh, might not know that you can do with pressure fermentation is that you can do loggers at at room temperatures, and this is I think one of the biggest things about pressure fermentation that you can do. Um, I, I've done a Hellas lager and a Czech Pilsner, which turned out absolutely fantastic. Uh, the Hellas Lager, I didn't have to put any um, gelatin into it to as a fining agent. Right. Uh, the Pilsner, I did, and whatever. I mean, I had to let the pressure out of the out of the Pilsner and put the gelatin in. Whatever, it's it, yeah. it's it happens. But then I just put CO two back into it, purge it out really well, mm -hmm. and it's all good. But 
the idea of being able to do a logger within three days instead of six or seven weeks is a game changer to me. Now, I will warn you, I will warn your audience that, you know, if you do a logger under pressure, you're going to have, don't be alarmed, you're going to have a ton of sulfur aroma coming out of oh, yeah. the, the spunding valve. I mean, it's going to, it's going to smell like rotten eggs. It's going to smell, <laughs> it's going to smell terrible. And you're going to be like, oh my God, my beer is ruined. It's not. Stay the course, have faith, don't worry, relax, drink, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, it's going to be fine. I mean, because, you know, I find that probably in the first three to five days, you have a huge aroma of sulfur. After about the sixth or seventh day, if it's still in the fermenter or whatever, and you haven't transferred it to keg yet, it, it subsides and goes away. You might pick up a little bit of that same aroma once you get it into the keg, but it subsides, you know, almost immediately. Once, once it chills down and some of the yeast yeah. starts to drop out and all that stuff, it, it definitely goes away. I find that has to also part, partly do with either the yeast that you're using or also the uh, hops that you use, which actually kicks into that, that, that kind of funky smell. Um, mm -hmm. But if you're doing like a traditional style uh, Pilsner, uh, being using noble hops, like say like saws or whatever else, mm -hmm. uh, that smell is minimal, I find. Is it okay? Yeah, it's minimal. Uh, especially like, I mean, you, you'll get that, that kind of like CO2 gassy smell. But yeah. after that, after that, say the first day, it's gone. Yeah, absolutely, okay. Absolutely gone. So, but I mean... If you had your choice of vessels to use to ferment under pressure, what would you prefer? Would it be your Flex Plus? Would it be the Firmzilla, a keg? Your I got to be honest with you, and the answer might be surprising. The, the, the Firmzilla All-Rounder, I have enjoyed the most. It's just, it's a simple vessel. It kind of reminds me of like a carboy on steroids, if you will, because it's like there's no dump valves. There's no, you know drain valves there's nothing it's just you it's just a vessel with a floating dip tube i like the fact that you know when i'm dispensing when i'm you know racking from it i can i can tip the vessel on the stand and have the ball float up out of the the yeast so that i can try to you know get as much as i possibly can out of the vessel and it just it just works i mean it just it really it just works i, I like all the other one i mean because i have i have a cornicle i have the flex plus i have the firmzilla have that one you know the the all-rounder and to me the all-rounder is just probably the most simple vessel that you can use one caveat with it is it, it it's a little frustrating for some people i don't worry about it too much but it because it's rounded on the bottom it does you know you can it can shift and especially when you're filling it if you're really you know critical or you know hyper tuned yeah. on i want to make sure i get five and a half gallons of beer you want to make sure you have a level to make sure that it's level because your, your gradation marks on the side, those are obviously affected if it's, if it's off yeah. level. But besides that one little caveat, I, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoy the thing and I, and I think it's, and it's easy to clean. I mean, you can get your hand in there all the way down the bottom, clean it out. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it works well. I, you know, I, I, I can't, uh, I can't think of a better vessel. Yeah. I have to replace, you probably have to replace it after two or three years, but I mean, as cheap as it is, uh, you know, all you're gonna, yeah like for my firm zella all i'm going to do is probably just replace the actual uh containment part the actual yeah. uh, clear plastic and that's only like 50 60 bucks right but uh like, like you're saying though all rounder it's a weeble wobble it doesn't fall down so you know come on right right exactly 
So, I mean, I mean, have you tried the Keglands uh, Keg Mentor? It looks like a um, I have not tried the Keg Mentor. Um, one of the things I do like about the 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 All Rounder is that it's clear. I mean, you can <laughs> you, yeah. can, you can see what's going on. So, I mean, it, you know, that's always nice. And even as many batches of beers I brewed, I, I still like to see the fermentation if I can. I mean, if I can't, I don't stress out about it too much, but. You know, it's one of those things that, that I like being able to see the fermentation. I have not tried the keg mentor, but basically it's the same idealism as, a, as fermenting in a corny keg. It's just, you know, they, they make some larger vessels for it. So, I, you know, it's, it's basically yeah. the same exact principle and process. So Yeah, it's a 50 liter keg, like mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the big ones. That, and then with the pressure relief valve with a tricline. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. Now I will say um, more beer just came out with a six gallon torpedo keg. So that would be an ideal uh, fermentation vessel for a five-gallon batch. So you could probably put five and a half gallons in there and uh, do a pressure fermentation and, and uh, come up, wind up with five gallons of beer. Huh. I'm going to have to look into that. Yeah, they just, they just announced it uh, recently. So that's, uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And I thought, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a great idea because then you could use it either as a keg or a fermentation vessel, whichever you wanted to do. It may be one of those unicorns like here in Canada. Like, like, yeah. They're very rare to find because like I'm trying to find a, a 65 liter uh, Brusilla. <laughs> they don't exist in Canada. They're not certified for Canada. Come on. If you can get them in the States, you should be able to get them here for God's yeah, sake. Yeah, I know. You guys have a little bit stricter uh, electrical laws than we do. <laughs> it's, it's just like walk into, walk into the hand and get slapped a little yeah. later, guys. Yeah, Come exactly. Come on, cover it exactly. Out. So... Yep. So I'm going to say that's it, bud. Thank you very much. That's, I mean, we could probably keep on talking beer and all that, but you know, I don't know if everyone wants to hear us geeking out. Yeah. I mean, I think in a nutshell, that's kind of, you know, that that's, uh, that's really the gist of it, you know, safety first, yeah. make sure your vessel is pressure, you know, fermentation uh, rated, um, try out the pressure transfer, and, you know, try out a lager for the first time if you haven't ever done it before. I mean, that, that's kind of what got me peaked, you know, my interest peaked into doing the pressure fermentation. I actually watched a podcast with uh, Chris White and uh, John Blickman, and they were talking about it. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. And, and you know, White Labs makes a uh, high-pressure lager yeast, but you really don't have to. I mean, no. I, there, we, we've got a, a running tally of all the yeast that people have used under fermentation on a Facebook page. And there's... Uh, I haven't seen too many of them that, that don't, you know, respond well to it other than, you know, like we said, the Belgian beers or the saisons or whatever that you want the character from, you don't want to do that. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, go out there, try experiment. I mean, that's, that's the best part about homebrewing is you can do whatever you want. You can try stuff, just make sure you document it. And then you can possibly, you know, if you, if you, if you get that unicorn beer, then you can maybe reproduce it. There you go. Send me the links to that uh, corny keg and I'll put it in the description down below okay. so people can have a look. Brian, thanks a lot for being on the show today. I greatly appreciate it. Guys, if you, haven't, if you haven't checked out his channel on YouTube, please go and check him out. There's a wealth of knowledge. This is where I, when I was getting back into it, I went and checked out all the electrical stuff that was out there before I went out and bought my RoboBrew. Honestly, the man has a wealth of knowledge, and this is the guy you got to go to if you want to talk electric brewing. Brian, thanks a lot again, and we'll see you on their side, man. Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers, mate. So I'd like to say thank you to Brian for being on the show this week. The man's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to anything electric brewing and also fermentation. So if you have a chance, go check him out over on uh, YouTube on Short-Circuited Brewers. 
all kinds of cool videos there on equipment, ferment, fermenters, and also his brew days. Really, really cool. Also, if you get a chance, leave us a review or rate us on whatever it is that you use for your uh, podcast listening, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatnot. It goes a long way to let me know how I'm doing. Also, guys, thanks a lot. Uh, check me out on uh, on you know, social media stuff, too, on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and all that good stuff. And uh, thanks a lot for coming along for the ride and a beer or two along the way, and I'll see you on the other side. <laughs>